When you are really going through it, sometimes it's really easy to lose sight of who Jesus is. But he shows us the end from the beginning. He gives us a light that will guide and sustain us. I had an experience like that once. It was up on a mountain. You know, there are people known as mystics in the church. Um, everything that you read that happens in scripture about visions and dreams and all the different ways that God speaks to us, those are all true. And there was a time in my life where God began to download some of his plans for my life. And he began to speak to me frequently on a daily basis. Um, and it was overwhelming and it was kind of shocking. And I'll be honest, I thought I was losing it. I went, at the time I was a, right, I'm flying in the Air Force. Uh, things like seeing things that aren't, that I know to not be there, that's frowned upon. I don't know if you know that in the Air Force. They don't like that. And the funny thing about it was that my specialty in the Air Force, I was a human factors expert, and so I knew all about the physiology of flight. I trained pilots in the physiology of flight, and my particular expertise was about sensation and perception in the fighter pilot. And I know all about the eyeball and what it takes to make it see something. Uh, and I know that it doesn't see something there unless there is energy there. But I, when I started to have some experiences I couldn't explain, I went to the doctor. Not the Air Force doctor, because, you know, <laughs> I'm smarter than that. So I went to a different doctor and I said, I'd like to get some brain scans done. I'd like these particular tests run. And he said, what is, what's going on? Why, why are you concerned? And I explained what was going on. And he said, okay, well, we'll do those tests. We had all the tests done. I have scans of my brain in my closet. Uh, and believe it or not, there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> And I just, I couldn't believe it. I kept pressing the doctor to do more tests and do more tests. And he said, are you a Christian? I said, yes, I am. And he said, I think you need to go talk to a priest. And so I did. And the priest said, I think you need to join this group that I have. And we're going to study some things together. Uh, and I'm going to help you make sense of what's happening with you. Well, I got really used to God being very close to me and talking to me and giving me visions and dreams every day, and I kept journals. I wanted to follow what he was telling me to do. And then he stopped talking, and I thought I was going to die. It was one of the most difficult times of my life. And I talked with someone uh, who is an expert in the spiritual life. Uh, it was a spiritual director. That priest sent me to go see that spiritual director. She said, this is very common. I don't know if you know this, but it's, it's known as the dark night of the soul. And it feels as if God is not there. And we know theologically, God is always there. He's in all of creation. He is around us all the time. But sometimes God presents God's self as absent and he hides. And there's a reason for it. And it, it can last for a really long time. For, um, for those of you who are familiar with, you know, Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa, when her biography came out, people were shocked because they assumed she must have had to keep going and do the ministry that she had. She must have had this close personal relationship with the Lord that sustained her through poverty and disease and all of those things. And it was amazing because she actually had not heard one utterance from God in over 35 years. Wow. 
And uh, I went looking for him though. I said, no, I'm, I can't live with that. It can't be 35 years of this. Um, I went to go get training to be a, a certified spiritual director. And I went to go live as a monk in a monastery for eight weeks. And we kept grand silence from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. We prayed five times a day together. Uh, we ate meals in silence. I mean, it, I was serious about this. <laughs> I showed up to get that training, but really I was showing up looking for him. If you ever read Song of Solomon and uh, it talks about the lover running through the streets, stopping people saying, have you seen him? Have you seen him? That's what it felt like for me. I was looking for him. And the very first person that I met in the monastery was a woman, another spiritual seeker like me. And uh, we got into a conversation about the dark night of the soul. She saw the book that I was reading by John of the Cross and he was kind of known for naming it that, the dark night of the soul. And she said, um, yeah, no, I totally relate. I've been in the dark night for 40 years. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. You get away from me, lady. I don't, no, I don't want to catch whatever it is that you got. No. About four weeks in, I had an experience that I really don't share. I don't talk about this experience. I don't, I'm not really sure how I'm going to talk to you about it right now. But I'll just tell you what happened, and it's going to sound ridiculous, just like the passage that we're reading today, right? It's people who've had this amazing encounter of God, and then, and it's wordless. It's beyond words. And then when you come back and you try to explain it to people, and you're like, but his face was shining, or the robes were shining. You know, and you're like, that's weird. <laughs> that sounds kind of, are you high? Like, <laughs> do you need medication? I'm not sure what the problem is. But I'm going to try and tell you. What happened to me was um, different from the close personal relationship of Jesus that I had grown accustomed to. And then he suddenly stopped talking and I heard nothing. And one night during that grand silence, um, I heard a small rapping at the door. I thought this was weird, but I go to the door and I peek out, I don't see anybody. I thought that was, must have been my imagination. A few minutes go by. I go and I peek out. At this time, I open the door. I look down both sides of the hallway. I'm wondering, maybe, you know, we've been here for like four weeks now. These people are starting to get punchy, especially the extroverts who like to talk. You know what I mean? Maybe there's some practical jokes that are going on now. But I didn't see anything, so I went back in. So this time, I opened the door, and I thought, well, my room was right across the main entrance into the, the dormitory. Like maybe they snuck outside. That's why I'm not seeing them in the hallway. So I stepped out. And when I did, this was on, uh, this monastery I was stay, staying at was part of, uh, it was a Benedictine monastery in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. And uh, it's a high desert. We were about 7,000 feet. And it was a very clear night. And um, I stepped out and I encountered what I now know to be the cosmic Christ. That there's the God that we know on a personal basis. You really can know him as your closest friend. And then there is also the creator of the universe. And that's who I met that night. And all I can tell you is that the stars were brighter and closer than I could explain to you. There was, um, I guess all I can say is that I saw his glory. I saw his glory, and I knew it was him. And I knew that he had come very close to me. 
And he had stopped talking because he needed me to pay attention. He needed me to know that, yes, I am your close personal friend, but I'm wanting to show you something else. And what I want to show you is my true nature, and I am the cosmic Christ. Thank you for letting me share that with you. My view of who Jesus was was transformed, transfigured from my experience that was beyond words. And probably like Peter and James and John trying to explain the glowing and the shining that they saw, I probably sound a little crazy. But I can tell you that that vision has sustained me through very, very dark days. This is the final Sunday after the Epiphany. And we always read the story of Jesus's transformation and his transfiguration on this Sunday. He was transfigured before his closest disciples and they were able to see him as he truly was. They'd gotten used to it. After three years of walking with him and learning from him, they'd gotten used to him being their friend. They felt like they'd come to know him. And he's like, even though I've told you this from the beginning, I need to show you now. And he showed them his true nature. They saw his glory. And it was an experience that so marked John that he began his gospel this way. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son. It was an experience he couldn't get over. If you have some time today, you might want to go back and read that first chapter of John. Transfiguration is in many ways the mother of all epiphany stories. It reveals Jesus as a prophet and a new lawgiver, and that's why Moses and Elijah are part of this story. They were seen on the mountain with him because that's what they represented to the nation of Israel, and he is also revealed as God's beloved son. Right before our passage, Jesus was, has been teaching his most disturbing and difficult lesson of all, something that we call the Paschal Mystery. We say it every time we say the Eucharistic prayer. We say Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's the Paschal mystery. And he had just taught that. Down at the base of the mountain, he told him, I, I know I've said it before, but I need you to know I have to die. I'm going to suffer and die. But I'm going to be raised again. It was a tough lesson. And then he made it even harder. Because then he adds, and by the way, any of you who would follow me, I need you to take up your cross and follow me. Wow, that is a hard lesson. I'm not sure I would want to do that. And then just then, I, I mean, I can imagine the stunned silence among the disciples as they're sitting there hearing that lesson. And then he calls Peter and James and John and says, come here, I want you to come up on the mountain with me. I don't know about you, but I think I would have been like, I don't, I don't want to go up on the mountain with you. But what? What are we going to go do? Jesus often retreats into the mountains alone to pray, but this time inviting them, it is actually one of the first official Christian worship services. He has something to show them. And what happens next is given a precise timestamp six days later. And remember how I told you that Matthew is trying to show Jesus retracing Moses' steps, the nation of Israel's steps? Well, you could see in our first reading today Six days is how long Moses was up in the cloud in the, on Mount Sinai before, Jesus, before God called to him. And the shining garments recall Moses' radiance when he descended from Sinai. And the description of the cloud and the divine voice speaking also point to that story of Moses on Sinai. 
And this is how Matthew is telling us that what happens on the mountain there with Jesus isn't just another story. It's not just another thing that Jesus did. What is about to take place has a place in the broad salvation story of the world. So what happens up there, I wonder? It's beyond explanation, of course, beyond words, but at its heart, it's a vision of something mysterious, the mysterious heavenly realm, and indeed of the world to come. Time and space seem to collapse. The world somehow becomes incandescent. And Jesus is seen talking with the lawgiver and Israel's greatest prophet. The disciples were overwhelmed and afraid. And Peter, who's never at a loss for words, even though maybe he should be, he stammers the suggestion, uh, you know, should I construct some stuff? Should I, like, get out my hammer and nails? Should I build some, some stuff up here, some tents? As Peter's... Th- I mean, we have to wonder, like, what was he thinking? Is he referring to the Greek custom of you set up a shrine anytime there is an appearance of God? Maybe he was thinking that. No. Or maybe he's thinking of Succoth, the, the Jewish tradition of uh, tabernacling, right? The festival of booths that they celebrated during the Exodus. Maybe he had made the connection with the Moses story and said, should, we, should I make some Succoth? Should we, like, go sit under a tent? Or is he simply at a loss, grasping for words and grasping for something that he can offer? God's voice coming from the cloud reprises the message at Jesus' baptism. This is my son. And this time he doesn't say, my beloved. This time he tells us, listen to him. Listen. And yet, even when his identity is reconfirmed in a spectacular fashion, Jesus orders his three disciples to keep it a secret until after he's been raised from the dead. For Matthew, true messiahship doesn't come with trumpets and chariots, but rather in the deeply hidden form of a suffering servant. And so it must be concealed until after the resurrection and ascension, which is the ultimate epiphany, the revealing of God. The transfiguration's light acts as a kind of reassurance for Peter and John and James and for the rest of the disciples and for the rest of us. It's as if Matthew is saying, we're now making a turn toward Golgotha, and that means descending into the valley of the shadow of death. But don't be afraid. Keep this mysterious mountaintop experience with you. Carry it like a torch, because it can show you the way, not least because it gives us a glimpse of where all of this is headed. Matthew's central point of the Transfiguration story is this, that the suffering and death of Jesus may first appear to be an unthinkable defeat, but it's actually a step towards the dramatic, subversive victory of God over death. Jesus will now venture into the shadows of death, but in order to scatter those shadows once and for all, overcoming them with his shimmering light, he must go down into the depths of what can only be called God-forsaken precisely in order to lift up the world into a renewed intimacy with God, a sort of intimacy familiar to Moses, who knew God face to face, and familiar to Elijah, the one who heard God in the sound of sheer silence, and familiar to Jesus, God's son. So take heart and listen to him. Continue to trust and walk with Jesus, following in his footsteps and taking up his mantle, even though the path ahead now seems strewn with danger and disgrace. A new jubilee and a new exodus is coming. 
and his radiant beauty awaits on the other side of Golgotha. Like John, we have seen his glory too. Maybe not directly, some of us. I hope you keep looking though. Maybe not in a cosmic night sky on a mountaintop, but I have glimpsed the shining of his glory again this week. When I gave the salt and light challenge, I gotta be honest, I wasn't really sure how y'all were receiving it. Maybe you were just thinking really hard, but when I handed out those envelopes of money, there was like no expression. I was like, are they gonna do it? Like, what's up, you know? I'm not sure what's happening. And then the emails began to roll in. The stories of your ideas of what you wanted to do. Really what I've done is I've invited you into God's dream of how he wants to transfigure the world. And I asked you the question to consider, how might God reveal himself to this world in you? It's always amazing to see how that happened. My friend David Peters, uh, he's a church planter down in Austin. He's a runner. And when he asked himself, how am I going to build God's church? How is God gonna reveal himself in me? He ran the Austin Marathon last Sunday and he broke a Guinness World Record for doing a marathon wearing a cassock the whole time. <laughs> I was inspired and humbled this week to hear how some of you have decided to reveal his glory in the world. Someone is putting together a blessing of the bikes for National Bike to Work today. And someone is building a, uh, or going to purchase a used ruck uh, pack. They're very expensive uh, to carry all that weight. And, uh, in order that no one who would want to participate in a ruck uh, would have to do without. We're gonna purchase a used one and put a little tag on it that says this is provided by Resurrection Episcopal Church. And even our youngest are getting involved. One of our youth is going to help animals with his gift. And we have a family pooling their money to help some homeless college students in need. They're providing blankets for those students to use. Uh, because I guess that's in fashion, they can sit in class and wrap a blanket around them and not stand out, lots of them do it, and nobody will have to know that they don't have coats. That one got me. I'm so proud of you all. Thank you. Thank you for inspiring me and for revealing his glory in ways that I hadn't seen before. I appreciate it. This passage itself this week is a high mountain that we're on in the midst of Matthew's gospel. On one side, we climb up through all the stories of his healing and all of the things that he's doing to heal and liberate this world. And on the other side, we descend back down to Jerusalem. And this week though, from this clearing on the mountaintop, we can survey both how far we've come and the Lenten journey ahead. In Epiphany, Jesus has shown forth to be a healer and a liberator, a teacher and a shining prophet. And now his path of love will lead down into the valley through the dry cinders of Ash Wednesday and the tears of the Via, de the Via Della Rosa, the way of sorrow. But this week from here where we stand in the light of the transfiguration, we can survey the 40 days ahead and take a deep breath and remember that through this journey of ashes and sorrow, it's not about that. It's never for that. It's for the sake of what comes next. When we are transfigured into the radiant light of a dazzling new life in a new world. Let us pray. 
O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and to be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> 